Turn in your Bibles uh, today to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 23. 2 Corinthians 1, 23. And we will be going through chapter 2, verse 11. Second Corinthians 1, starting in verse 23. This is what the Holy Spirit says to us through Paul. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray for his help now. Our God, as we come now to look at your word, we know that these are spiritual things, that are of eternal importance and that they cannot be discerned, they can't be understood without your spirit. We pray, Lord, for the spirit that works now within us, that he would teach us all things, that he would show us Jesus Christ, that he would convict of sin where necessary, and that he would show us what it looks like to walk in true obedience. We come to you because in our flesh we are weak, but we desire to hear and know these spiritual things. And so we ask for your help. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's remember what's going on here in this story 
a bit of a soap opera with uh, Paul and the Corinthians. We looked at chapter 1. We're finishing chapter 1 today, and we've looked at how Paul had uh, visited them, and he planted the church, and then some uh, conflict arose. They did not receive that letter of 1 Corinthians very well. They were not happy about Paul's instructions. And so when Paul heard about this, he went and made a visit. He went and made a visit, and things did not go well during that visit. And so uh, as he was attacked there, uh, some people stood up probably publicly and opposed him. And so now Paul has to write this other letter. He's writing this letter, 2 Corinthians, to defend himself. He's being attacked for his integrity. Uh, He's being attacked as a legitimate apostle, and he's trying to defend the fact that he really is an apostle. And so we've seen in the last couple weeks how Paul is saying that he is a godly and sincere man, and he had said that he was going to visit Corinth again on his way to Macedonia, and he didn't end up doing that. And so because of that, people are saying that Paul is dishonest or that Paul says one thing and does another. He can't be reliable. Paul says, no, I'm a man of integrity. And the reason he gave for the importance about that was because God tells the truth. God keeps his word. When God promised that he would save his people, he meant what he said. And so Paul's words there in verse 20 were that God's promises find their yes in Jesus Christ. We focused in on that last week about God's covenants and how God's covenants were all fulfilled in Christ. And so now we come to this place where Paul is continuing to defend himself and we finally get the reason for why he didn't visit. He tells them that it was for their good. It was for their joy. He wanted to spare them, as we're going to see. And so this whole part of the letter now is Paul finally explaining, and we get to understand the exact reason of why Paul didn't visit. But the main lesson that we can learn from this passage is that Paul desired their joy. And so that's the lesson that we want to focus on today, is that The gospel is meant to bring us joy. And those who preach the gospel are doing it for our joy. We see this in two parts. In chapter 1, verse 23, up to chapter 2, verse 4, he talks about this reason about not visiting and how he desires to work for their joy. And then we have kind of the the negative side of that, the the opposite picture in verses 5 to 11 of chapter 2. We have a a case of a man who is being tempted uh, to be overwhelmed with sorrow. Satan has some schemes that he's working in the Corinthian church to overwhelm a man with sorrow. And so Paul is writing that part of the letter to counteract the scheme of Satan. He doesn't want us to be overwhelmed with sorrow. He wants us to have joy. So that's the main theme of this passage. Let's start with the first part of Paul saying that he's a worker for their joy. Uh, Let's start reading again in verse 23. He says, But I call God to witness against me, 
It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. So there we see it in chapter 2, verse 1, that Paul had made a painful visit. That's why he says, I'm not making another one, because I did make one. I made an emergency visit to try to deal with the situation. But maybe you found in your life that when you're in a conflict and you try to resolve a conflict, it actually makes the conflict worse. You try to go talk to somebody and it's clear that they don't want to talk to you. And so Paul's intentions were good. He desired to resolve the conflict. He made this visit, but it was painful. Painful because, again, someone stood up in opposition to him. And the church seemed to not do anything about it, or they seemed to go along with it. Well, after that, he wrote a letter. We see that if you jump down to verse 4. I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So there was another letter that we don't have between 1 Corinthians and this one, 2 Corinthians. Paul wrote a tearful letter, stained with tears, out of much affliction, anguish of heart. And what he was probably doing was trying to fix the problem, resolve the conflict. Paul thought, okay, instead of going in person again and drawing attention to myself, and we have this big scene, maybe I'll just write a letter and I can lay it out. I can lay out the issues. I can lay out to the Corinthians. Here's what you guys need to do. And I will beg you. I will tell you how I feel. I will open up my heart to you. I'll tell you that this is important. But by not visiting, the letter gets read. They are all sitting there. They hear it. They can think about it. And then maybe later on, Paul will visit. That's the idea. So, Paul said he would visit. And then he didn't visit. Is Paul a liar? Is Paul insincere? No. Paul's whole point here is it was for your own good. And you're getting mad at me about that? You're getting mad at me again for not visiting? No, it was for your own good. So back in verse 23, it was to spare you. Paul could have come, as he says in 1 Corinthians, I could have come with a, do you want me to come with a rod? You want me to come like a, like a parent give you a a beating because of your sin? You want me to bring the rod and just tell you all the things that you're doing wrong? No. It was to spare you. It's to, to not start another fight, but to resolve this situation that I came. He says, I call God to witness against me. It's a big deal to call God as your witness to say that God is going to judge you if you are lying. But Paul is doing this because they're misinterpreting everything he's doing. And there's no way 
that Paul can prove that he's right, that his reason for not coming was actually for their good. He can't prove that to them. And they're, they're bent on misinterpreting him anyways. But he can call God to witness against him. Sometimes we got to do what in our conscience we believe is the right thing to do according to the word of God, knowing that God is our witness. And sometimes people might misunderstand that or they might not believe that. But God is your witness. So it was to spare them. And then he says in verse 24, not that we lord it over your faith. Not that I am the Lord over the church, Paul is saying. I could come and I could just tell you all what to do and make you do it and say anybody who doesn't want to do it, they can just get out right now. I could do that because I'm the Apostle Paul. But I'm not going to lord it over your faith. I'm going to work with you. I'm going to work with you. I want, I want you as a church to decide for yourselves what kind of church you want to be. I want you all to decide and to work on this, to figure out what the Bible calls you to do. So I'm going to write a letter, and I'm going to tell you what I think. I'm going to tell you what, what God says, and I'm going to tell you how much anguish I have over your sin. But I'm not going to beat you into force, into, and forcing you into doing what you need to do. You need to decide, church, if you are going to follow the word of God. I am not Lord over your faith, he says, but I work with you for your joy. We are fellow workers, him and his apostles, uh, helpers like Timothy. They are fellow workers with them for their joy. Paul wants their joy. That's the whole purpose of his ministry. That's the whole purpose of him preaching to the Corinthians. Well, he goes on, we'll talk about what that means, but he goes on in chapter 2 then to explain more about this. He says in verse 1, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain... Who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So we see in those verses this mutual interdependent relationship for the sake of joy between Paul and the church. Paul says, why would I want to cause you pain if you're the ones who make me glad? If, if you're sad, that makes me sad. So I'm not going to cause you to be sad. He says in verse 3, you should have made me rejoice. Church, you're the ones that bring me joy. You make me rejoice. And then at the end of verse 3, he says, my joy would be the joy of you all. What he means by that is 
the joy of you all, the joy of the church, is my joy. So Paul, his goal is to work for their joy. He wants them to have joy. But then, when they have joy, it brings him joy. My joy is the joy of you all. Paul's work is a cycle that eventually brings him joy. And you might say, Paul, what idolatry. What idolatry that your joy would be dependent upon people. Isn't that the kind of thing that we hear all the time? I mean, Paul does say rejoice always. Rejoice always. It doesn't matter if people are mean to you. It doesn't matter if people hate you. It doesn't matter if people oppose you. It doesn't matter if your church doesn't like you. Rejoice. Paul says, but my joy is intertwined with the joy of my church. Well, Paul is not a robot. He's a human being. And God has designed us to be in relationships with people, and these relationships are meant to bring us joy. But that also means that relationships can hurt us. The very things that can bring joy can also bring pain. And it's not idolatry. God has made us to have relationships. God has made us to be in a church. And sometimes in the church there is pain, and many times there is also joy. C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves talks about this. He says, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure to keep your heart intact, give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Maybe you've known people who just don't want relationships. Too hard, too much pain. I'd rather just be living life about myself. I'd rather wrap up my heart in my own little hobbies, not think about other people. I don't want anything to do with the church anymore because the church caused me pain. But Paul says that the church can also bring you joy. Yes, it does hurt. But that is not a reason for us to leave relationships or to leave the church is God has also designed that through these relationships, we would also grow in joy. Paul finds his joy in the Corinthians. Yes, they cause him pain, but ultimately he is working with them for their joy. He is like a father who has more joy in watching his own children open presents on Christmas than opening his own presents. He loves them. Paul loves the church. And so when they are happy, it brings him joy. 
He wrote that letter in verse 4 that he mentions to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. And because I have abundant love for you, then like C.S. Lewis said, you wrung it and you almost broke it. But instead of wrapping up my heart in my little hobbies, I decided I would love you. I have abundant love for you. And so I wrote this letter to try to reconcile instead of just leaving you. So what does this have to do with us? Well, we see here this mutual relationship of our joy and the joy of those who preach the gospel. Of course, we don't have apostles today, but we do hear the gospel through those that God has called and put into place in the church to preach the gospel. Those who preach the gospel to us are workers for our joy. And then when we have joy, it brings them joy. That's why they do their work. That's why they are in the ministry. Because it brings them joy not to have all the stuff and the fame and the money that everybody else has, but to see the children in the church walking in the truth, the people of the church. To see the church growing in their joy is what brings them joy. And so the question for you is, Do you have joy? Do you have joy as you hear the gospel? Does the preaching of the gospel bring you joy? William Tyndale talked about the word gospel that is the word that means good news, the word evangelion, where we get the word evangelism or evangelical. It just means good news. Good news. Tyndale says it signifies good and merry, glad, and joyful tidings that make a man's heart glad and make him sing and dance and leap for joy. That's what the word gospel means. When someone preaches the gospel, they're singing, uh, they're, they're preaching glad tidings that are meant to make your heart leap for joy so that you sing and dance. Because this is good news. You, an enemy, Facing execution, facing death and condemnation. There's no way that you can escape. There's no way you could save yourself. But there are glad tidings for you. There's a way for you to be saved. Christ Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection. And so, for example, in the Gospels, when we see the, the story of Jesus being born, we see the shepherds out at night And the angel says to him, Behold, I bring you good news, glad tidings. I bring you the gospel of great joy. And then when the wise men were following the star and they found the star, it says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I love that verse. (laughs) It's a quadruple joy. It doesn't just say they rejoiced, but they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So apparently it's possible to rejoice exceedingly without great joy. But he wants us to rejoice exceedingly with great joy when we see the Savior. Because that's how good this news is. And so if you are here with out believing in Christ or following Christ with your life, 
Do you know this glad tidings that you could have, this great joy, the joy of heaven and eternal life, the great joy that comes when you have this great burden of sin upon your back, this huge feeling of guilt and condemnation. And yet, when you look to Christ, you can have that burden rolled off of your back and find great joy. You can find great joy by realizing that all of your efforts to be good enough and to be acceptable to God, they haven't gotten you anywhere, but there's a way for you to be freed from that slavery of trying to be good enough. Free from the striving to earn acceptance with God. Because your acceptance comes through the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus lived the life we could not live. He died on the cross to take the curse that we deserve. And he rose from the dead to give us eternal life. So that if you're not following Christ, you can follow him. You can repent of your sins and put your trust in him. And your sins can be placed upon Jesus. And you can have eternal life. And then as Peter says, be filled with joy inexpressible. That is the message of the gospel. That's the good news that you can have. But also if you're a Christian, do you have joy? Paul says here in verse 24, we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Joy comes by standing firm in your faith. Standing firm upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Standing firm by remembering and celebrating and learning more and growing deeper in your understanding of the faith. Knowing Jesus Christ and him crucified. Your only boast being in the cross. You stand firm as you live your life and you see year after year all of these things of the world that the world offers you and how they pass away. They're fleeting fads. But you, as you stand firm, you will find more and more joy. But are you finding joy in the gospel? Do you find joy when the gospel is preached? Do you love to hear the story of Jesus Christ? As that hymn says, we love to tell the story. Tis pleasant to repeat it seems each time I tell it, more wonderfully sweet. I love to tell the story for those who know it best are hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. You know it best. You've been a Christian a long time. Are you hungering and thirsting to hear the message of the gospel? Christ has given us the Lord's Supper as a way to always have our minds drawn back to Christ and the gospel. Is the Lord's Supper drab to you? Is it another ritual that we have to get through at the end of a day? Is the Lord's Supper something you've just done so many times it doesn't really mean anything to you? 
Stand firm in your faith. Remember Jesus Christ and the gospel again and again. That's what the Lord's Supper is for, to feed you for your joy. So you have joy in the gospel. Those who preach are called to work with you for your joy. Well, now we come to the second part of this passage of the man who is overwhelmed with sorrow. In chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Paul continues with this theme of pain that is being caused to him and the church. He wants the church to have joy. He wants this man to have joy. And so here's what he says about this one man, verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. There's this one person, this, this man who has caused pain. Now, different uh, commentators have different ideas of who this man was. A lot of people might think that it's the man of 1 Corinthians 5 who was committing incest in the, the church in Corinth. And Paul wrote to tell them to uh, discipline him and to excommunicate the man, hand him over to Satan. And so some people think it's this man who had been committing incest and then was confronted by the church. And now here he is repentant, is overwhelmed with sorrow. And so Paul is telling them to reaffirm him, to bring him back into the church because he's repentant. Now, there are a lot of people who think that, but the majority of people in the commentaries seem to think that this was the man who caused the opposition in the church in Corinth. When Paul made that emergency visit and there was a big blow up, there was at least one man who seemed to be the ringleader who stood up and opposed Paul and attacked Paul. Uh, that's what, what I think uh, it is. That's the man that, that I think is the one who did this. And so Paul says here in verse 5, this man has caused pain with his opposition. But he says, he's caused it not to me, but to all of you in some measure. Now, I don't think Paul is saying, he literally didn't cause me any pain, like I'm fine. I think what he's saying is, again, I'm not trying to draw attention to the personal attack. It's not that he personally attacked me that's the real problem. The problem is how that attack affected the church. By him attacking Paul, it was causing division in the church. And so Paul is saying, look, the pain that he caused really is not about me. It's in some measure to all of you. I think he says in some measure because he didn't literally attack the whole church. But his division affects the whole church. That's a good reminder for us. Euodia and Syntyche in Philippians. These little fights between these two women. That's not a fight between two women. That's the body of Christ being ripped. It affects the church. A, a small group within the church opposing the leaders of the church. That's not a small group. That's being affected. That's the church being divided. 
And so we always need to remember that we need to be pursuing and working hard for peace and unity in the church because it affects the whole body. We are one body. We need to remember a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A small leak in the ship can fill the ship with water and the leak will just get bigger and bigger and sink the ship. So this man has caused pain. He's caused division. But now we have another problem of a church that wants to be too harsh on this man who seems to be repentant. So Paul says in verses 6 to 8, For such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So this man was punished in verse 6. He was punished by the majority. He was disciplined. Probably it's because Paul wrote, a, wrote that letter. And in verse 9, he says, This is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. He probably, in his letter, said, Okay, guys, if you want to fix this relationship, this man needs to be held accountable. We're not going to sweep sin under the rug in this church. And I just pretend nothing happened and all just lovey-dovey towards each other. No, sin happened. It needs to be dealt with. So there was a punishment. There was church discipline. Church discipline is biblical. It's healthy. It's necessary. Church discipline was done by the majority. So we see here even that there was a concept of who was in the church and who was not. You have a majority of a church you require, that requires membership, right? Who, who are the hundred people who are allowed to make this decision? We need to know, because if, if 51, the majority, made this decision, we need to know who those hundred people are. So we have membership. We have a church making a decision to excommunicate, to discipline. That shows us that the congregation has a role in the church. They're led by the elders, but the congregation uh, does church discipline at the final step. And the congregation is the one who chooses their leaders. They make this decision. So they practiced church discipline. It's a reminder to us that church discipline is good for us. It's biblical. And so if you're not a member, you need to join a church. Because you need to be under discipline. It's pride to not be under the discipline of a church. You need a church to hold you accountable. You need a church to be willing to excommunicate you if you are so blind to your sin. So church discipline is good. But the purpose of discipline is to restore you to restore us when we fall into sin. The sad thing is that in our day, there aren't many churches that practice discipline. And so when someone does get discipline, they just leave the church. And they go down to another church. And they sit in the pews and sit in the chairs. And that church isn't going to do anything about it. And even if we were to call them and tell them what's going on, they're still not going to do anything about it. 
And so a man can be so blind in his sin that he will commit adultery. And we would be faithful to discipline him. And he will go and sit in a church with his mistress. Trust me, it happens. And that church will do nothing about it. Don't be so foolish. Submit yourself to the church. Allow them to call out your sin and bring you to repentance. And don't just leave and go to another church where you can get away with your sin. But repent and be restored. It's painful. It's hard. It's hard to come back to a church where everybody is going to know what you've done. But it's biblical and it's for your good. But we see, Paul says, the punishment is enough. It's enough. Apparently, the man repented. Praise God. Apparently, the man was sorrowful over his sin. And so Paul says, turn and forgive him. There's no forgiveness without the man's repentance. But he's repented, so now it's your turn to forgive him and comfort him. And Paul says in verses 10 and 11, Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So Paul's saying, look, I forgive him. Don't think that you have to stand up for me because he attacked me. No, I forgive him. You need to forgive them. The problem is that now, though, the church seems to be piling on the punishment, continuing to punish a man who's repentant, continuing to cast out a man who is truly sorrowful over his sin and desires to come back. And Paul says in verse 11, you need to forgive him so that you're not outwitted by Satan. Don't be ignorant of his designs. Satan has schemes. Satan has plots and plans. You realize that Satan is sitting around plotting how to destroy Albany Baptist Church. He's thinking, how can I tear this church apart? He has designs, and you need to be aware and not be outwitted. What does it mean to be outwitted? It means that you're not thinking about what Satan is doing. You're not aware. Don't be outwitted by Satan. Satan has a plot for the Corinthians. His first scheme was that this man would not be disciplined. And then Paul says, nope, you gotta, you got to hold sin accountable. So first plot of Satan, don't practice church discipline. Second plot of Satan, if you practice church discipline and the man repents, be harsh towards him. Don't forgive him. Don't let him back in. And that would be wrong. So we need to forgive, reaffirm, welcome back those who truly repent of their sins. Judas, in Matthew 27, Judas realized his sin. He went to the chief priests and the scribes, and he said, I have betrayed innocent blood. You know what they said? What is that to us? 
What is that to us? That's your problem. And Judas went and he hanged himself. We know, you know, God's predestination of Judas and everything, but from the human perspective, the human cause, Judas came to the religious leaders who knew that God was abounding in mercy and steadfast love. They knew Exodus 34. And Judas came to him and said, I've betrayed innocent blood. And instead of saying there is grace because God is merciful to sinners who come to him in repentance, they said, that's your problem. So he hangs himself. That's what Paul is saying, don't do to this man. Don't let this man go and hang himself. Don't let him be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow because people in the church are harsh towards repentant sinners. So we need to ask the question, why? What is it in Satan's schemes that makes Christians harsh towards others? And the answer is that there is a secret legalism in all of our hearts. It is a human nature to be a legalist. And what, what that means is that you think that others' sins are worse than yours. You think that you're better than other people. And so that leads you, you, us, every human being, that leads us to treat others more harshly than we treat ourselves. Think about the Corinthians. First Corinth, uh, First Corinthians is a mess. They're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. But then this guy stands up and opposes Paul, and they all say, "Nope, not letting you back in. You're a terrible guy. Really, you're calling him terrible, and you're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. That sounds pretty terrible to me. But it's a legalistic heart." It's the scheme of Satan to say, we will not receive back that man because that man's a lot worse than I am. It's a symptom we find in the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Mad that the father would throw a party for a filthy sinner like that guy. The older brother doesn't realize He's a filthy sinner. He thought he earned his father's love. He thought by being a good, obedient, church-going, religious man, the father would love him. So his sins of self-righteousness, his sins that are internal in the heart, aren't as bad as the filthy little brother. And that's the attitude that you and I have towards others. Someone said, when we look at other sins, we become judges. When we look at our own sins, we become defense attorneys. It's very easy, isn't it, for you to explain your sin? Well, look at my circumstances. Look at my experiences. Look at how I grew up. Look at all the temptations that I face. That's why I did this. But then when it comes to somebody else's sin, no room for grace for you. 
So the solution to counter the scheme of Satan is to know your sin. To know how bad your sin is and to actually be broken over your sin. The Corinthians need to realize that they need to receive this man because what he did is not any worse than anything they've done. And if they want forgiveness from the church, they need to offer forgiveness to this man too. We who are Calvinists of all people should know how bad people are. You should know how bad your heart is and you should know how bad other people's hearts are. You should know how long your sanctification takes. And so you should know how long it's going to take other people. Realize how bad your sin is. Realize how long it takes you to overcome your sin. And you won't be harsh, as harsh, towards others. We need prayers, like in the Valley of Vision. And I'm concluding with this. You should read Valley of Vision. The prayers of confession are amazing. And you need to believe these kinds of things. This one is called, Yet I Sin. This is the attitude that you need to have about yourself. Eternal Father, thou art good beyond all thought, but I am vile, wretched, miserable, blind. My lips are ready to confess, but my heart is slow to feel, and my ways reluctant to amend. I bring my soul to thee, break it, wound it, bend it, mold it, unmask to me sin's deformity that I may hate it, abhor it, flee from it. My faculties have been a weapon of revolt against thee. As a rebel, I have misused my strength and served the foul adversary of thy kingdom. Give me grace to bewail my insensate folly. Grant me to know that the way of transgressors is hard, that evil paths are wretched paths, that to depart from thee is to lose all good. I have seen the purity and beauty of thy perfect law, the happiness of those in whose heart it reigns, the calm dignity of the walk to which it calls. Yet I daily violate and contemn its precepts. Your loving spirit strives within me and brings me scripture warnings and speaks in startling providences and allures by secret whispers. Yet, yet I choose devices and desires to my own heart hurt. I impiously resent and grieve and provoke him to abandon me. That's your heart. That's who you are. And so that brings us to the joy of Christ. If you understand how wicked your heart is, you will have great joy that Christ would show grace to you that he would save you and that will help you towards others. Not to be harsh with them, but to work for their joy, to give them the same gospel that you know you so desperately need. May we be a people who are not overwhelming others with excessive sorrow, but working with them for their joy. Let's pray.